Michael, this is all very confusing. Anyone who's tried to buy a car over the past few years knows that it's a challenge at best. Inventory is next to nothing and prices are through the roof. Personally, I've been trying to buy a car for almost nine months now and no luck. Just like with everything else these days, the decreased supply is blamed on the pandemic and supply chain issues. However, I can't help but wonder if the automobile manufacturers have used the supply chain excuse to manipulate and control the supply and demand in order to drive up stock prices. I'm Remy Bartolotta, and this is On Markets, presented by Darwin Asset Management and Darwin Wealth Management. With me today are Chief Investment Officer Michael Sorrentino, Senior Financial Advisor Michael Bartolotta, and special guest Sean Sullivan. Thanks for joining us today, Sean. Yeah, it's my pleasure, uh, Remy. Sean has been in the car business for 30 years now and is currently the general manager of Bill Curry Ford based out of Tampa, Florida. And he has graciously agreed to come on our show and give us an insider's look at what's really going on within the auto industry. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to shout out on the show, email comments at onmarkets.com or hit me up directly at remy at onmarkets.com. And if you like our show, please hit the follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. So Sean, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, again, my name is Sean Sullivan. I have been in the business since 1992. I started at the bottom of the business at Jesuit High School. I used to ride my bike and detail cars to the largest store in the country. That's what Bill Curry Ford was at the time. I would detail cars in the afternoon. Then I worked my way up the ladder. By 2001, I was in management. And then in 2006, I left Bill Curry Ford and went to a large company with multiple stores, uh, really cut my teeth, learned how to manage, you know, over a thousand employees, uh, multiple dealerships. Then in 2018, uh, Jennifer Curry, who is the owner of Bill Curry Ford and Curry um, Auto Industry, which she has three major Ford stores in Florida, uh, we reconnected and I have been in charge of her stores since 2018 of August. And then we are embracing on a $20 million rebuild of the nation's uh, former largest store. So it's very exciting. And uh, we were called the giant in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And we are the giant returns, which is what my tagline is. And you can see all my advertising. And I'm very excited about it. I've worked very hard and diligently over the last two years to build the most state-of-the-art, customer-friendly store that works online and in person to help the consumer have a better car experience because they will spend more money with me when I do that. Very cool. So 30 years, you've been in a lot of positions. It's safe to say you know what you're talking about. I would sometimes, I mean, you'd have to, it depends on who you talk to, but yes. <laughs> don't ask your wife, right? Right. Don't ask my wife, right. Yeah, she's, uh, she's my boss. But what I can tell you is, is that I have a lot of experience with the auto industry, with corporate. I sit on two major boards for Ford Motor Company and for, for the state of Florida. And I even sit on a board for Tampa de Auto Dealers. So I'm very engaged in the politics of the car business, as well as the everyday ongoings of our business. And there is something going on. I wish that I could tell you for a fact, but I can tell you based on experience, what's going on in our market right now is we're making all-time record profits. So we have no cars, right? A limited supply of cars and the timing from Ford Motor Company to come out with these amazing new brands like the Bronco, but I'm only getting nine of them, right? So Let's just take this for instance, it's like we advertise to the whole country, hey, listen, we have all these great products coming out and it's going to be sensational. And then local dealers are going to get five and six and then there's, they're going to drive up the demand for the pricing. I mean, we sell ten to $15,000 over MSRP on our vehicles. So we're selling less but making more money and our profit margins are at an all-time high. And my only thinking is we've had two years 
two years, these guys have been hiding in their houses, right, doing their Zoom meetings, right? And you think that over that course of time that they would be able to figure out supply issues or parts issues. And what I think is they spent their time remodeling our business as a whole and kind of modeling it after a Tesla style where we are now taking direct orders from consumers, charging them more money and saving money on parts and parts obsolescence over the course of years, because that's where Ford loses most of its money is in having to incentivize cars that sit on your lot too long. As you know, I'm sure you guys hear it. You're in sales, right? You come in, incentives are an all-time high. It's because we have leftover inventory that we've overbought, and then now Ford has to pay to make it go away, which is a loss to the company. And then when we don't manufacture enough, we buy all these parts a year or two years ahead of time, and then we can't use all the parts. So then they write those off in what's called parts obsolescence, which is another loss to the shareholders. So they figured during this pandemic an easy way to solve their two largest problems. One, they've solved the inventory incentive problem by not manufacturing cars. Okay. The number two is they have figured out how to control their parts obsolescence by doing orders, just like what Tesla does. So even though we're not a direct-to-consumer, we are still part of the direct-to-consumer chain because we work, we're the middleman. So let's, let's talk about this for, for a second. So traditionally, uh, car manufacturers have not been direct-to-consumer, right? But it looks like Tesla has sort of tried to change that and maybe it's moving in that direction on the whole in the industry. So maybe you can talk a little bit about sort of how the, the manufacturer-dealership relationship has worked traditionally and why it hasn't been direct-to-consumer and maybe why it's moving that way. Okay. Well, I do think, uh, Remy, that there's a certain percentage that's moving that way. And we have to, as a car business, adapt to what the consumer wants. We can't just say we're the car business, do what we say. We actually have to adapt to ongoing trends in the market, just like financial trends, right? So basically, the dealer body has always been available to the consumer because when you went online to order a car, just like if you were buying a home, there are some people that want to sit in the home or sit in the car, test drive the car. So one of the things that the dealer body helps the consumer with is the fact that they can still come in, test drive the vehicle, and purchase the car in a hopefully less than an hour time for the consumer. What Tesla's done is they've said, we're going to eliminate the dealer body because we don't feel that the body shop or the parts department or the service department or the sales department is inconvenient anymore for the consumer. We're going to just deliver the car directly to their home. And when they have a problem, they can call the corporate headquarters and then we can find a location near them to do this. Now, I'm on the fence about what the real demand is and if this is a media driven demand or is this a real demand from consumers? I'm really struggling with that. So, Sean, I have a question for you. There's a lot to unpack in what you're talking about, right? I mean, has Tesla sort of changed the model? Are you, as a, a more traditional dealership, going to try to somehow adapt that? Or is the car business in general going to try to adapt that? And it makes me think about the fact that I walk in right now, and maybe for the first time that I could remember, I have zero leverage, right? Two years ago, I walked in, and if I was going to buy a minivan, nobody was buying minivans, right? I was expected to pay 10 grand under list. Now I'm paying 10 grand over list. And if I don't want to pay 10 grand over list, they tell me to get lost, right? I have no leverage at all as a consumer. You know, if you remember Saturn, GM put out the Saturn a bunch of years ago, which was a no-haggle pricing thing, which is really what Tesla has done, right? You walk into a Tesla store, you just buy the car per sticker. And that was the case before the pandemic and before the supply and chain disruptions and all this other nonsense. But Saturn failed miserably. 
And I think it was because, and I knew a guy that had a Saturn dealership at the time, and he said, look, no matter how hard they try to create this no-haggle pricing, people walk into a dealership, and the culture is you walk into a dealership and you haggle. And so they failed. I mean, were they just ahead of their time? I guess the only thing that makes me feel like maybe this time is different is it feels like all the companies are colluding to me. Well, one, we can't use that word, right? That's why I said it feels like. <laughs> yeah, government doesn't like that word. <laughs> so no collusion. Each dealership stands on its own for what they sell. And manufactured retail price is a suggested retail price. Let's just keep that in mind. This is not a, a price in stone. This is suggested. Suggested to me means in the car business, whatever I want, right? So that's how I feel about it. And I absolutely agree with you about the customer not having any leverage in this. And that's not what we want. You know that the best deal that you could ever make in any business is a deal that's fair for both sides. That's the best deal that I'm looking for. You can only sell so many cars for $10,000 over before customers are going to lose faith in the system and not return to your store. So our business is built on repeat business. The family store that Henry Ford designed was for every town to have a family Ford store and become part of the community. We have 41 active charities in Tampa. That's what a Ford store is supposed to do. And I feel like this market and this new way of doing things is so cold and it's hard for you to understand because you're not in the business, but it feels cold. Hey, Tino, you've been uncharacteristically quiet. My question is, now that you're hearing all this from Sean, does it make us want to take another look at automotive industry stocks? Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've been curious about this. Sean, you mentioned a couple of things I've been thinking through here. One, um, inventory control is something that a lot of industries after the financial crisis, uh, they, they spent a lot of time and money on technologies to help them control their inventory. As we all know, we're all business owners to a certain degree or we manage businesses. Inventory can kill a company if you don't manage it properly. And we saw a ton of money and time and technology get put into place to control inventory. And it's changed the profitability of a lot of companies and industries rather. Now you think about the automobile industry and call it law of unintended consequences, right? You get this shock to the system. Nobody was expecting it. People stopped buying cars and all of a sudden there's a shortage, the supply chain shortages. And then it's interesting. Now these companies are making a lot of money. And just so you know, not a lot of money, record money for the auto industry. It's been around since 1903. We are making more money right now than we in the history of the car business. So how does that change the behavior going forward, right? I mean, you're getting five or six cars. Maybe it doesn't stay there, but you're probably not going to go back to the days of getting, you know, like you said, your dealer incentives. Maybe those are going to go away at some point. I mean, I don't know, but profits do two things. They change behaviors for management teams, but they also attract a lot of competition too. So there's a lot of these dynamics are going on. I'm actually more interested in a question here. I think about, and Mike, you brought this up, something very interesting about this idea of negotiating and, and haggling, right? That was part of the car buying process for decades. My father, who's in his late 70s, will out of boredom some days, he's retired, he'll go to a car dealership just to haggle for fun. <laughs> it's in his DNA, right? right? Look, I think everybody on the call here, like I'm in my mid-40s, like that was how I learned to buy a car. I wonder though, you're saying it's cold, the shift to online purchases and skipping the dealerships and stuff. Is this a fundamental shift in terms of the way people are buying cars simply because it's a generational shift? I don't know. I mean, personally, I loathe going to the car dealership. I hate it. <laughs> I want to buy online. I would like to test drive a couple of cars, especially if, you know, if they're higher end and I've never driven one before. But ultimately, to be totally honest, I don't want to haggle. I just want to look at whatever the price is on my screen, pay it, and it's 
delivered to my driveway. I don't want to have to speak to anybody. I totally understand that, Remy. First of all, you've never dealt with me. You would have a wonderful experience, right? So That's probably true. Right? That's right? probably true. Right. So basically, I don't like the coldness of it. And just to getting back to paying online price, you realize that when you're not haggling and you're just hitting a number, Tesla's making all of their profit because they're not negotiating the pricing. If, if anybody's doing things wrong, it's the way they do it online. You want to talk about not negotiating. My goodness, you go on a Tesla and they you build it from start to scratch and here's your number at the bottom and you just hit buy now. There could be $10,000, $20,000 of gross in there. You have no idea. You don't know what someone else who bought a Tesla paid. You don't know an average Tesla price. I mean, if you come into the dealership, there's so many different tools that are out there to help a consumer understand what they're paying, uh, what other people are paying, um, what the average F-150 sale price is. It's a platinum with a 2.7 or a 3.5. They People know what those prices are going for. Tesla, you guys are just building it and pushing a button. To me, that's the cold part of the business, but Tesla's just raking the money in because you guys are paying whatever they say. Tesla could raise the prices by 15% tomorrow and people will just still hit the button like this. They don't think about what they're paying. I feel like the amount of time I spend haggling is like, if I just push the button, yeah, it cost me $2,000 more, but quite frankly, it's, it's not worth my time. Where's the fun in that, Remy? Uh, the fun is that I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> I, can, I can go home and I can spend that two hours hanging out with my son or, or whatever. So I'm actually curious. So I'm going to date myself a little bit here. I used to work in the cell phone and beeper or pager industry. Uh, it was very similar to the car business now, right? You had your manufacturers, you had your resellers, and all of the resellers were all independent. And each one of those independent retailers, for years, that was great. But I believe Sprint, I could be wrong, but I believe it was Sprint, was the first company to open up a Sprint store, a direct-to-consumer Sprint store. And within three years that entire industry was decimated. There was no more third-party retailers. Every single phone company had a direct-to-consumer store. And now, as you know, if you want Sprint, you go into a Sprint store. If you want AT&T, you go into an AT&T store, and so on and so forth. And I'm wondering if Tesla is like Sprint. Is Tesla the one that's going to sort of change the face of the auto industry? And will companies like Ford move in that direction at some point? Well, Remy, they are moving in that direction because so Tesla sells about 110,000 vehicles in the United States. We sell one and a half million of one vehicle line. Just to give you, for instance, it's Tesla has never even touched the 17 and a half million SAR. Are you familiar with the SAR in the money business? No, explain it to us. Okay, so the SAR is how the car business is measured. Basically, it's how many new vehicles are sold in the United States every year. Right now, our SAR is 17 and a half million. That's what we're selling this year. And we can dictate recessions. You guys were talking about recessions yesterday. I can dictate recessions based upon what the SAR predicts for next year. If that SAR drops to 12 or 11 million, we're in big trouble. But anyway, 17 and a half million is what we're at right now. Tesla and electric car companies make up 4%. That's it. The way the world talks, you would act like every single person has an electric car and every single person buys a Tesla or a, a new electric car, for goodness sakes, it's less than 4%. It's growing at a 1.9% pace on 17.5 million. So in five years from now, it still won't even be 20% of their entire new car business. And I'm not even talking about the used car business, which is 33 million cars a year. None of those are electric. And I can tell you why, because when the hybrids came out in the auto industry, everybody said the hybrid's the new thing, right? 
Every car is going to be a hybrid. Everything is going to be hybrid. Well, guess what? That lasted about three years. We sold a bunch of hybrids. And then as soon as people started replacing batteries, they went back to gas cars. All right. Because the batteries die in hybrids. And when you do, it's so financially expensive, you trade the car. Then it went into the used car market and then somebody would buy a used hybrid and the thing would break down in a year and they'd have to put 12 grand into it. And that slowed down the hybrid sales on the used side. Electric is going to be very similar. We don't have the infrastructure for electric cars. And I know people have talked about that. Henry Ford in 1903 wanted a car to drive across California. It took 55 years before we had a gasoline infrastructure where you could drive a car from Florida to California. 55 years. So let's just say it takes half of that time to replace all of our infrastructure electric grids. The, the idea that this is going to be anything more than a slow burn to me, I think that's what it's going to be based on my experience. I've seen all the fads. Right now, Toyota is big into hydrogen. If you want to talk about some stocks right now, you guys need to be looking into hydrogen because Toyota, who has led the market, and they, by the way, it's the most brilliant car company in the world, is Toyota. They're always ahead. And they've abandoned their entire electric facility now. They've abandoned it to do only hydrogen. They believe that in the next four years that they'll develop an engine that runs on water. So we're talking about some crazy technology that I don't know if it works. But again, Toyota isn't sold on electric cars either. I'm worried about the infrastructure. We had a customer buy one, a Tesla from us. And he lives in an apartment complex in Tampa. The apartment complex wouldn't let him charge it. He came back and sold it to me where I made money and sold him another car and made more money. So I was super happy with the way electric's working for me because <laughs> uh, I just keep making money hand over fist. So we are talking about not only is it going to be way more expensive for a consumer to own an electric car long term, NADA, if you look at NADA right now, it says that it's going to cost $1,800 more on average to maintain an electric car than an ICE engine. And my only thought was, if we're going to jump into politics really quickly, and I don't, I want just a short politics thing, we've had diesel engines that burn zero emissions for five years. We could make every single vehicle that we make burn zero emissions in a diesel engine. Why aren't we going with that technology? I drive a zero emissions Ford F-250 lifted, bad to the bone truck, by the way. Come to Bill Curry Ford, get your, get your diesel truck. Anyway, with a lifetime warranty. But I will tell you, there's nothing that drives like a super duty diesel. Zero emissions to the environment. None. We had this technology. Europe tried to do it during the 70s. They had really terrific low yield diesels. And again, politically, there's some reason why we don't actually care about the environment. We care more about the actual platform of the politics than we care about the actual meat of the politics and what actually could really help people in America. If they really want environment, we've had the technology for five years where zero emission burns. We can make every vehicle a diesel and have no carbon footprint. So they, they won't do it because it makes too much sense, too logical. So Mike, Tino, do you guys have any questions for Sean? I think it, what you said was interesting about the size of the market. I've read that EVs are even less than 2% total. I don't know what the number is, it's, but I agree. It's so low. And, you know, it's interesting you also mentioned hydrogen. So I, in my freshman year of college, I wrote, I was an engineer, and I wrote this super long paper on this idea of like a hydrogen combustion engine. And I don't remember a single word from it anymore. But I remember writing about it. I was like, this is going to happen. This is going to be the future. This was in 1994. Five, okay, and you're now talking about a hydrogen engine. Thirty something years later, or almost thirty years later, whatever it is that is still conceptual. 
And I think it's important to think that from an investment standpoint, this is the reason why I've always been such a skeptic around, I don't want to talk stocks, but call it the EV stocks, is that the expectations that are being baked into a lot of these companies, it could take decades to get there. And look, will they get there? Will EVs continue to grow? I think they will, you know, to a certain degree. But over what investable horizon, I think that's the challenge that I have a hard time with. We can't sit down with our clients and say, hey, we got a great idea that's going to work in 2038. I mean, that's just not going to be feasible. So I've always had a challenge investing in this space simply because of the dynamics of, of that. But also, too, these companies are getting software multiples on them. Right, they're getting recurring revenue multiples in some instances. Tesla, it, I don't know how it's being valued. There's a point, Sean. You may have seen this a couple. It was probably about a year ago. Tesla was valued more than every other car company combined. And if you looked at the production, as you already know, this is it was like a percent of the of the total, even less than that. But that was all based on futures, which you know is a whole nother conversation. But how do you future predict what a company is going to be able to make in profit? It's terrible investing, in my opinion. I don't understand it. And you guys are the experts investors. Like I have a money guy that does that for me, but I don't understand the futures part of Tesla. I mean, his stock went up when his truck didn't work. I don't know if it's just the person himself. Is he like the Henry Ford of his time where everything he touches just turns to gold? You know, where it doesn't matter what Henry Ford invests in. Henry Ford invested in a concrete ship. I don't know if you've heard this story. He was brilliant. He made a ship out of concrete that the um, country of Japan purchased. In World War II, they bombed it as practice runs for their zeros for attacking Pearl Harbor. And they actually couldn't sink it. There's a lot of things about Henry Ford that are very interesting and the, the effect that the car business has had on America and the effect that the car business has had on American economy is, is, can never go understated. I think you should start a podcast on the history of Henry Ford. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. He's just a guy for me. Like, I sell his products. And you know what? The interesting thing is, is that Ford Motor Company doesn't follow any of his predictions or rules or how to manage a business, which drives me crazy and gets me kicked off of, of Ford boards when they hear me talk. <laughs> that, that gets me voted off. So if I'm not mistaken, you actually run your own podcast. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, best in class. Yes. It's a, an NFL podcast. It's the number one downloaded podcast in South Korea, if you can believe it. I don't know why it is. <laughs> but again, sports is a passion of mine. Uh, in the car business, I deal with athletes a lot. You know, I've worked with Brady. I've worked with Bruce Arians. I've worked with Brian Ford. I sit on, which is the, this is the president of the Buccaneers. I put football players in cars and have for 20 years, starting with Warren Sapp. So I thought that was funny as I, I have some really terrific stories about athletes and cars, but I talked to my legal department. They didn't want me to, <laughs> to say the name. Oh, that's disappointing. Wow. So if anybody wants to hear Sean talk about sports and football, best in class, I assume you're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Please follow me. Today, I'm actually doing my post-draft follow-up. I will be talking about on markets and the crossover podcast that I did to all the people that listen. So hopefully I can get a crossover fan for you guys because uh, you guys are doing good stuff. Hey, we'd appreciate it. Listen, if you think Sean's head is full of all kinds of crazy factoids when it comes to cars and Henry Ford, you ought to listen to his podcast. I have no idea how you fit all that crap in your head. I'm a Jesuit grad, Michael, right? So we were, our memories were trained <laughs> since birth. So, Sean, at the end of each episode, we like to wrap it up with a quick summary. So, you know, Tino usually does it, but this week I am going to give the honors to you. So, as it relates to the changing face of the auto industry, what's the bottom line? 
The bottom line is that the car industry is adaptable through wars, through recessions. We have been extremely adaptable. When COVID hit and the supply chain hit and the semiconductor chain hit, we adapted our business to be profitable like we always have. And at this time, 18 months later, I feel like it's time to get back to normal business. We've had two years to figure it out. I'm hoping that this isn't the new way that we're going to do business moving forward. Hopefully, next time we talk, I'll have a better news on the auto industry for the consumer side because the auto industry is booming. I would just like the consumer side who actually pays my bills to have a better experience. is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management LLC and Darwin Advisors LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk and there could be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.